Good morning, everyone. I'm so grateful for uh, Jesse and his worship team that has helped us to give words to, I think, what is the desire of our hearts this morning. One of the things that we reminded ourselves through singing was that we stand on a solid rock if we stand on Christ. And those are truths that I need to sing to myself and to you all, and I need you to sing them to me on a regular basis because I'm prone to stand on a few other things rather than the solid rock of Christ. Just this last week, I was confronted by a, a, an engine problem at the Biola power plant, and it didn't take long where I rushed down there and started standing upon the sinking sand of my own experience, my mechanical aptitude, and my troubleshooting skills, and found that I had dove into that thing for probably 45 minutes or so before I recognized, oh, I need to get back on the solid rock of Christ and ask Him for wisdom and guidance, even as I get my hands greasy and dirty on this obstinate piece of equipment. <laughs> now, I don't know, you probably don't find yourself working on generators during the week, but you have other things that take you by surprise, other things, situations or news that comes your way, where before you realize it, You've stepped off the solid rock of Christ, and now you're standing on something else. You're standing on your good looks. You're standing on your experience. You're standing on uh, your brain cells, your IQ. Perhaps it's the coattails of parents, whatever. You name it. There's a multitude of things that we can step out to and lean on apart from Christ. So today, as we come back and remind ourselves that we stand on the solid rock of Christ... That ministered to my soul. Because we live in a world that's characterized primarily by bad news, right? If you pay attention at all these days, you know that ISIS or ISIL, depending on your acronym, is running amok and they're persecuting Christians. And the grisly accounts that we read of in here that have gone on over the centuries are what we see lived out on the internet today. And now we even see right here in our own country a man who went wild at his workplace and beheaded somebody, and now there's speculation as to whether or not his recent uh, conversion to the nation of Islam has some, something to do with him acting out in that way. We don't know. But it doesn't have to be those sort of spectacular type things either. Maybe some of the news that you're responding to this morning as you walk in here is something a little closer to home. Maybe it's a recent diagnosis. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's unemployment. The list goes on and on. Circumstances come our way that we don't ask for. Evil is done to us that we didn't ask for. And we find that we now have received news that we're reacting to. And if you're like me, you're prone to step off that solid rock of Christ or slip off and start leaning on your own understanding, start leaning on a, a multitude of other things as you respond to these circumstances, as you respond to this news. So today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. So please open your Bibles there again. Mark chapter 1. And what we find is Jesus coming on the scene and conducting His ministry. And Jesus conducts a ministry. There's three things we're going to learn this morning as we open Mark chapter 1. Jesus has a ministry that's a gospel ministry. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel. 
Jesus commands a radical response to the gospel. That's the second thing we'll learn. And the third thing is, is that Jesus calls common people, common folks like you and like me, to join him in his gospel ministry. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel. Jesus commands a radical response to the gospel. And Jesus invites common folks like you and me into gospel ministry. So my desire today is that we would understand the gospel, that we would love the gospel, that we would worship God because of the gospel, and that we would count it a joy to partner with Him in gospel ministry. That's one of the radical responses that He calls us to. So that's what I would love for us to do this morning. Let's pause in prayer and then we'll begin reading in Mark chapter 1 at verse 14. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning thanking You and praising You for who You are. We thank You that by Your grace we can stand on the solid rock of Christ. And that by Your grace when we slip and fall off, uh, You call us back and welcome us back on. We thank You for these words that You preserved for us and we pray now that You would quicken our hearts by Your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired these words, and that You would cause these words to land on our hearts as the truth of God that they are. And that, Lord, we would hear Your call and answer it faithfully to respond to the good news of the Gospel. Lord, we want to worship You. We want to glorify You in these ways. So send forth Your Spirit now and empower us to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus comes into Galilee now on the heels of John's arrest. John was sent, as you heard from Dave Talley last week, John was sent as a preparatory minister. His ministry was one teaching and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in helping the people become ready in their hearts and in their minds to step into relationship with God. So John comes and he conducts his ministry and Jesus even is a beneficiary of his ministry. Jesus stepped into the Jordan with John and these people, Mark had made it clear that these people had been waiting for this coming one and they were looking according to the direction of the prophets, they were looking for one who would do three things. They were looking for the heavens to be rent, to be opened, they were looking for the Spirit to come down with power. And they were looking for an audible voice of God. And when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, all three of those things were fulfilled. So what Mark has said so far is that Jesus is absolutely, undeniably the one that you have been waiting for. And now, after John is arrested, John's ministry is now over. He's arrested. He's removed from the scene. Jesus knows now that it's His time to stand. 
It's his time to go forth and to begin his ministry. And he comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, when I first read this and started to prepare for this message, I wondered, what, what is this gospel that Jesus came proclaiming? I'm a New Testament Christian. I've been taught that you understand the gospel in a 1 Corinthians 15 sort of way, meaning the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin. And that through faith in Him, you get forgiveness of sins and this great exchange of turning in my filthy rags of my unrighteousness, my sin is laid on Him and His righteousness is bestowed on me on the basis of faith. That's the, the essence of the New Testament gospel as clearly as I can explain it. Is that what Jesus rolled into Galilee and began proclaiming? I'm going to die, I'm going to go, and I'm going to hang on a Roman cross, and I'm going to shed my blood and make payment for sins. We see that he does begin to bring his disciples in on that, and we see that they just didn't have a category for that. Because this one that they had been waiting for, this triumphant king who would come and usher in a fresh manifestation of the kingdom of God, they didn't understand that he would go to the throne by way of the cross. I'm so grateful that Mark includes the words of Jesus here that help us understand this gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. In other words, you have been waiting a long time and that time is now fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not a strange concept if you read the scriptures to think of God as a sovereign and benevolent king. From the creation account in Genesis 1, we see that God spoke and stuff that didn't exist before, matter, came into being out of nothing. That's sovereignty. <laughs> to be able to proclaim a word and something that didn't exist before now exists, that's, that's the creation account from Genesis 1. God, our triune God, is a sovereign king over his creation. He's a sovereign king and he's a benevolent king. By Genesis 1 and 2, we see that he has created this beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. And he places Adam and Eve, also works of his creation, in this beautiful garden. And in that garden is every green and leafy plant and every tree bearing fruit, pleasing to the eye and good to taste. That is their provision of sustenance and food. Everything that Adam and Eve needed for life was provided by their benevolent king. And yet by Genesis chapter 3, we see that they have turned their back on their sovereign and benevolent king and chosen to go their own way, chosen to exercise their own kingdom, if you will. And they have disobeyed God's one command that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In so doing, they reject God as their king. And ever since that time, every man and every woman that is alive today and in between then and now has been born into a fallen creation because Adam and Eve's disobedience broke their relationship with God. What used to be intimate was now separated and distanced. And they became aware of that. And they hid themselves. They used fig leaves. Thus the fig leaf conference that the men will be coming to this next weekend. Guys, I want to encourage you to come to that. 
because we become masters at manufacturing fig leaves to cover up our sin rather than allowing God to rip off that fig leaf and clothe us fully with the righteousness of Christ. That plug was for free. They have a, we have a broken relationship. Every one of us has been born into existence on this earth into a broken relationship with God. And we need to be restored to Him, our sovereign and our benevolent King. And God is about that. And that's what Jesus comes into town and He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now Mark has also made reference to the book of Isaiah one of the prophets, in helping us understand that John the Baptist was this forerunner, this preparatory minister who would point to the coming one, to Jesus. And for his audience to have been reminded of chapter 40, verse 3, as he was explaining who John the Baptist was, they would have also been reminded of other verses in Isaiah. Now God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke these words of comfort to his people who were in exile. They had continued to disobey him. There were some kings that were faithful and would lead them back toward a, a restored relationship with the Lord. And there were some kings who would go their own way and disobey God. And it's through the prophets like Isaiah that God proclaims hope in the midst of exile in the midst of the natural consequences of them going their own way. And it would be words like this from Isaiah that help us understand this gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus comes proclaiming. This word euangelion that is translated in your Bible as gospel can also be translated as good news. This is news that is designed to bring joy. It is truly news. It's something that has happened. And so Jesus comes proclaiming the good news. And Isaiah 40, verse 9, helps us understand what that is. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now in this verse, good news means here. Your God is here. It is good news that there is a God and that He is here. Behold, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to, God, to Zion, Your God reigns. Now the good news in this verse is that there is a God He's a good God, He's a benevolent God, and He reigns over the affairs of men. That is indeed good news. And because He does reign over the affairs of men, the prophet can speak of things like peace and happiness and salvation. God is sovereign and God is benevolent. And He rules over the affairs of men. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 59.20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This good news reminds us that there is a Redeemer who is coming under God's good, sovereign, loving, and benevolent rule. And He comes not to all, 
but he comes to those who turn from their transgression, who repent. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus comes preaching a baptism of repentance, preaching repentance in response to the gospel. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. This is also a set of verses that Luke records that Jesus comes into the synagogue and reads this from the scroll. After he rolled up the scroll and sat down, he says, Today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. So Jesus has declared or is declaring that he is the one that is spoken of in here. And as I read these verses, listen for yourself in here too. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom of God is good news because when God rules, when God reigns over the affairs of men, the poor have good news preached to them. The brokenhearted find comfort and health and healing. The captives are set free. Those who are bound experience freedom. And those who swear that they've been abandoned by God re realize that the Lord's favor rests upon them. If you find yourself in there feeling poor because you're brokenhearted, poor because you're captive to sin, poor because you're bound either to sin or to somebody else or something else, poor because you're longing for vengeance because of the evil that's been meted out to you in this fallen world, or poor because you're mourning a loss, there's good news and that good news is of the kingdom of God. There is a sovereign, loving, benevolent God who knows your need and has the resources to meet you at your deepest need. Your God reigns. And this is good news. Because He's sovereign, He can meet your needs. And because He's benevolent, He wants and longs to meet your needs. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God, which, is, which pointed toward a coming Redeemer. And now Mark shows us that Jesus embodies the kingdom. He comes in and proclaims the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as He does that, He is embodying a fresh manifestation of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is the King. He's the coming one, the one that they have been waiting for. And Mark will show us over and over again in the early verses of his gospel that this is true. He will demonstrate to us that Jesus does possess the authority of a sovereign King. And He does possess the authority and the motivation of a benevolent King. In Mark 1, verse 22, we see that Jesus is one who has authoritative teaching. He teaches as one who has authority, not as the scribes. In 1 and 27, we see that Jesus has authority over the demons. 
In 1 and 34, we see that Jesus has authority over disease and infirmity, illnesses. And in chapter 2, verse 10, we see that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus embodies this kingdom of God and His arrival in Galilee displays a fresh manifestation of this kingdom that these people had been waiting for for so long. And the sovereign, benevolent rule of God is indeed good news. It's good news to them and it's good news to you and me today. Listen to the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones and what he has to say about news. He says, Advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet. But you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you. And all you can do is respond to it. The news that Jesus is proclaiming is the kingdom of God. It is news. It's a fact. It's been done. God has been ruling and reigning over His creation since He created. It doesn't always look like it because fallen man likes to go his own way. But the sovereign and benevolent rule of God is the good news that Jesus comes and brings and He proclaims in Galilee. And as He proclaims this good news, He also commands a radical response to the good news. News is something that we can only respond to. We can't go back and change it. It's history. But we can respond to it. And Jesus commands a radical response to the gospel. He goes straight to the heart and He calls people to respond to this news. He leaves no room to wiggle. And He authoritatively commands people to respond in a certain way. Look with me at verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. These two words, repent and believe, they're an invitation. But the words that they're translated from are written in the imperative mood. They are clear commands in the Greek. There's no wiggle room here. This is a command from the sovereign Lord of His creation to us who needs to hear the good news and needs to respond appropriately. And God commands a radical response to the good news of His kingdom. And that response is to repent and to believe. Now we being Americans who value freedom above most things, this can be a hard word for us to, to hear. We don't like people telling us authoritatively what to do. I remember when I was in elementary school, there was a, a friend of mine named Kyle, and he would hardly ever listen to a command of one of the teachers. He, he was just naughty. And when the teacher said, why won't you listen to me? Why won't you just obey? He looked up at her and said, it's a free country. I can do what I want. <laughs> we Americans are an obstinate and independent people, right? And that's still true today. We value our independence. And we can, some people, some of us even can value independence above that of the gospel. That is not biblical. 
Jesus comes as a fresh manifestation of the kingdom of God and authoritatively commands an appropriate response to this good news. So he commands it authoritatively, but let me also say that he commands it benevolently because he recognizes that our deepest need is sin and the way to find freedom and forgiveness from our sin is to repent and believe in the gospel. It's the way we find life. We are masters at seeking life apart from God. Even in Christ, we fall off the solid rock of Christ and we are tempted to trust other things or other people. And I wonder, what is that for you? What are you prone to trust? What are you prone to stand on rather than the solid rock of Christ? This is a cruel world. It's a world that's out of control. And for some of us, control is an idol. We need to manage our circumstances and manage our financial affairs. We need to manage our calendar, manage everything we can to create a safe environment in which that comes to me only that I allow to come. We're a people that, that suffers with self-esteem and will do anything we can to earn approval from another man or another woman or another child. We're people pleasers. We're people who hold on to wealth for a sense of security. That's me. I've, I've done that. I do that. We're people who values influence and derives from that a sense of significance before God and man. If we have influence, we've arrived. If we hold some even ministry role, then I have, I've become somebody. I have an identity. Some of us are prone to look at our body image and find worth there. What is it for you? Where do you tend to look when you seek life? Whatever it is, Jesus is calling you to repent and to believe in the gospel because these things are sinking sand. And it is only through repentance, turning away from that sin, and turning toward God that we can stand on the solid rock of Christ and find there the life that He has purchased for us with His precious blood. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and commanding a radical response of repentance and belief. And these two things happen concurrently. They happen simultaneously. We can't turn from our sin unless we're trusting the one that we're turning toward. And we can't trust the one that we're turning toward fully unless we're turning from our sin. These two happen together. It's repentance and faith. Belief. It's by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that, a gift of God, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any of us should boast. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. <coughs> Repentance means to lay hold of Christ and hold Him as He lays hold of us, and to find there the life that is ours. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We can lay aside this 
these things where we're prone to find our identity, this sinking sand, and we can receive Christ through faith. And that is the radical response of our sovereign and benevolent King as He seeks to meet our deepest needs. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he preaches on this idea of repentance and faith happening together. He says, in fact, this is how true Christians live. They repent as bitterly for sin as if they knew they should be damned for it. But they rejoice as much in Christ as if sin were nothing at all. Oh, how blessed it is to know where these two lines meet. The stripping of repentance and the clothing of faith. The repentance that ejects sin as an evil tenant and the faith which admits Christ to be the sole master of the heart. These two things together make up the work of grace within, whereby men's souls are saved. Be it then laid down as a great truth, most plainly written in our text, that the repentance we ought to preach is one connected with faith, and thus we may preach repentance and faith together without any difficulty whatever. Repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. We abandon sin as we turn to Christ. And there, in Christ, we find life that He has purchased for us. Everlasting life. And those who respond to the good news in repentance and faith are also called to join Jesus in His ministry. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. He commands a radical response to this good news of the kingdom of God, that response is repentance, belief, and to follow. Look with me at verse 16 and beyond. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus calls common folks to join Him in gospel ministry. Jesus comes into Galilee and He strolls by the Sea of Galilee and He finds there men engaged in business as you would expect. They're by a sea, there's fish in the sea, and these two men, Andrew and Simon, are casting nets into the sea seeking to reel in fish to provide for their own needs as well as to sell and to, and to feed the general public. They're conducting business. They're fishermen. I think that's why Mark puts that little explanation there. These guys were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. They were engaged in business. And Jesus comes up to these men in actively engaged in their business and he says to them, follow me. That, by the way, is also a command. He commanded them to follow him. That sounds cold. That sounds harsh. But remember, Jesus is a fresh manifestation of the sovereign and benevolent King. And when He commands us, He always commands us to do something for our good and for His glory. So the command to follow Him is an invitation to join Him in His work. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And what is their response? 
they leave their nets. They immediately left behind their business to follow Jesus. When Jesus comes and calls, he wants first priority in your life. He wants priority over your vocation. And that's a radical message in modern-day America, isn't it? We tend to idolize our work. Jesus wants primary place in front of your vocation. And as he came and called James and John, he asked them to leave their father. He wants primary place over your vocation. He wants primary place over your relationships, your other human relationships, even with those most closely associated with you. Jesus commands a radical response to the gospel. Does that sound like an impossible task? To allow Jesus to make you become a fisher of men? Does that strike fear in your hearts? The idea of evangelism takes most of us outside of our comfort zones. But this is what Jesus is commanding these men into. This is what Jesus, when he calls us, commands us into. He commanded these fishermen into relationship with himself. We follow a person, not an ideology. We follow a person, not a philosophy. It's not 10 steps to a restored relationship with God. It's follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you become fishers of men. We follow Jesus, and in, we, in following Jesus, he sets order back into our life again that is Godward, not selfward. He delivers us from our idolatry of self, and he he invites us, commands us outside of our comfort zones and takes us there for our good and for His glory. I could, before the Lord called me into ministry, I was a businessman up in North Dakota. And one of the businesses that we operated was an agricultural drainage business where we, we dug open ditches in farmland. It was a dusty muddy, and sometimes both at the same time business. I came home filthy. And we would hire operators to run these ditchers for us. And as I was training the operators, I assured them that I what they were getting into was a dirty job. It was a mess. And that I would be asking them to do tasks that they were going to be exhausted by, they were going to wish they didn't have to do because it was going to require that they got messy and dirty and dusty. It was a a dirty job. But I assured them, I said, I'll never ask you to do something that I haven't first done. I'll never ask you to do something that I haven't done myself because therefore I know that it can be done. And I'll provide you with the resources that you need to do what I'm asking you to do. I'll provide you with a service truck, with the tools. I'll provide you with everything that you need to operate this machine and to keep it working properly. This is what Jesus does, but exponentially more so. He commands us into relationship with himself, and he invites us to join him in this ministry, and he resources us with everything that we need in order to fulfill it. Chief among them being his Holy Spirit, the power that we need. 
He invited Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him and he promised to make them fishers of men. And he did that. He taught them. He provided resources for them. He explained to them the word of God. He gave them ministry skills as they observed him. And most importantly, when he entrusted them with the task, he gave them the power of his Holy Spirit so that they could proclaim the truth of the gospel with clarity in the way that they ought. And he asked James and John, he commanded them to leave behind everything. And they left their father behind in the boat. And they left their friends, the hired servants, behind in the boat. But remember, Jesus will never command you to do something he hasn't first done. The one who commands these guys to leave their business and to leave their father has first left the heavenly father and became a bondservant in the form of a man. The one who says, lay down your life, pick up your cross, has laid down his life as he took up his cross, joyfully giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. So Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, commanding a radical response and promising to make these men and us into fishers of men. And he will do it. He can do it. I've spoken in harsh terms because those are the words that Mark uses. He uses commands as he quotes Jesus. Jesse used this also in his worship set. Let me repeat it. These are also the words of Jesus along this same flavor. They're from Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does that sound like a little warmer invitation? Those words are also commands. Come, take, learn. When our sovereign, benevolent king commands us to do something, it's always for our good and always for his glory. We can take his yoke. This is his work. He is the one who is building his church. He's the one who has come proclaiming the gospel. And he invites us to join him in his work, to take up that yoke and to learn from him how it is that we actually can do this business, how we can grow into being fishers of men. He promises to resource us with what we need and to teach us. He says, learn from me. I'll make you become fishers of men. I believe Jesus has been at work in your lives. I've watched you closely over the last year since we've been here. And I see Him bearing fruit in you and through you. But I also believe that He is continuing His work and He has greater things for us to do here as a congregation. He wants us to turn over more areas of our heart to His Lordship. He wants us to step out in fresh ways and trust Him as He promises to make us to become fishers of men. So as you sit here this morning, and as you hear His call to repent, and to believe, and to follow, 
what is it that you need to step off of that sinking sand and onto the solid rock of Christ? What area of your heart do you need to give up to Jesus so that He can be king over it? What area of your life do you need to let go of in order to follow Him more fully into the ministry that He is calling you to? Where do we need to trust Him? In fresh ways as we step out of our comfort zone and seek to bring the good news of the gospel to the area of downtown Fullerton. I invite us now to sit in silence and to examine our hearts before God and to see how it is that He wants us to respond to the gospel of the kingdom. Let me lead us in some prayer as we sit in silence and allow the Spirit to work. Father, we thank You for these words and we ask that You'd give us ears to hear. Send forth Your Spirit now, Lord. Accomplish all that You intend to accomplish in us as individuals and through us as a corporate congregation. Show us, Lord, how it is that You want us to trust You in fresh ways. Lord, affirm us and comfort us as we walk in faith. Rebuke us and call us to repentance where we are prone to trust ourselves. And help us, I pray, to find the life that You purchased for us by shedding Your blood on Calvary's cross. Lord, give us ears to hear now. Show us how it is that You want us to respond radically to the good news of the kingdom. We love You, Lord Jesus. We thank You that You gave all that we might have life. We present ourselves to You now. Have Your way in us and through us to the glory of Your great name. Amen.